I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to I Like to Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I am here fresh off of the Philadelphia Film Festival. Hashtag PFF31. This is the 31st annual Philadelphia Film Festival, and I was blessed to have uh, been able to attend it. And this is the first time that I was able to attend a fest covering it solely from my own website, scullyvision.com. So shout out to those at the Philadelphia Film Society for setting that up and allowing me access, which I used to see I believe 28 movies. It was an excellent time. It was so much fun. I ate peanut butter and jellies in a volume that you would not believe because who has the money or the time to do any of that? So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to hit your asses with a commercial, and then we're going to come back and I'm going to give you blurbs on literally all of the movies that I saw. Um, A little bit of background context. Uh, During this time that I've been away, I participated in a sober October challenge, meaning for 31 days straight, I did not imbibe any chemicals of any kind short of uh, caffeine, and I did not do any drinking. And about five minutes ago, we wrapped on a Hot Property podcast, at Hot Property Pod, on all of your social medias. And uh, so I had a couple beers. So this is my first time being lit up in a little bit of a little bit of time. It's uh, good to be back. One of the cool things about Sober October is you learn a lot about yourself. Uh, I mean, I was never the biggest drinker, but it really makes you appreciate having that reward at the end of a week that comes in the form of a cold beer. I was a big pot smoker, but I think I'm actually going to wave bye bye to that. It was definitely becoming a problem. And uh, now it no longer is. And mostly I just sleep better. That really is the big, big change. And as I crawl towards 40, it is uh, sleep is one of the more important things. So as always, you can follow the podcast at Movie Movie Cast on all things. And uh, if you want to check out my coverage of the Philadelphia Film Festival, as well as everything else I do, just log on to scullyvision.com and you can find Everything that I did, uh, now of the 28 movies that I saw, I did not review all 28 because I am just a human man. I am only capable of so much in my flabby shell of flesh. But uh, there's a lot of good stuff there, and we are going to get into it after this. So a quick break. Uh, Happy end of Sober October. And I will note, it's a shame that October is the only month that rhymes with Sober, which is why you have to do it in October. Uh, It's also the time that the best beers are out. So I spent the last month stocking beers, and I'm going to spend the next hour drinking them. And you're going to be right here with me. Thank you so much, listeners. And uh, we'll be back after this. All right, boners, I'm back. And it is time to go through all of the stuff that I saw at the Philadelphia Film Festival. Uh, This year was a really good year. Uh, 
you know, I mean, I guess I'm going to end up saying that every year, the more that I think about it. But so often you'll go to a film fest and you'll come out of it going, oh, you know, it's all right. I saw a couple things that I loved, I saw a couple things that I hated. I would say that almost everything I saw was very good to great. There was only one movie that I would say I disliked. And even that dislike is a little weak. There was a lot of value to it. But we will get there when we get there. So I'm going to fire up the letterboxed and we'll go through uh, the stuff that I saw. So let's see. I, I put it all into a list, too. So if you're interested in checking it out in list form, um, like I said before the break, full reviews are at scullyvision.com. But I also have a list on my letterboxed, which is just my name, Dan Scully. So check that out. And we're going to go through these in order. So the very first film that I saw was Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inishurin. This movie was incredible. Per my letterbox, I gave it five stars. And I can't imagine that there is any way that this will not end up on my end of year list. There's a pretty decent chance it might be at the top. And so what this movie is about is uh, two friends on an island just outside of Ireland called Inishurin. And I believe the year is 1923, I want to say. And so the, the historical details are sort of relevant to the plot, but it's not really a main part of the plot. Uh, mainly what happens is uh, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell are both very good friends. And every day at two o'clock, they go down to the feckin' pub. If in Bruges was fookin' everything... Uh, everything in this is feckin'. And uh, they go down to the puppet too, and one day, Brendan Gleeson's character, Colm, tells Padraic, who is Colin Farrell's character, that I don't want to be friends anymore. Don't talk to me. And so the film follows Padraic as he's just trying to figure out why his best and perhaps only friend, uh, I almost said only fans, his only friend doesn't want to hang out with him anymore. So this spirals into, as is very common and standard for McDonough, it spirals into uh, violence, confusion, and laugh-out-loud humor. Uh, some of McDonough's movies are a little more comedic than others, like In Bruges is more expressly a comedy than, and Seven Psychopaths more, ex more expressly a comedy than Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. I would say this is his funniest movie, but I also think that it is a, it's kind of his most dramatic as well. It's a quieter movie, which runs as a dichotomy to what is actually going on underneath. Uh, there are undertones of discussion about, uh, as much as I hate the term, toxic masculinity is definitely a concern here. And just about the, the idea that communication is sort of key, especially in a time when everybody is stressed out. Highly recommend this one. I almost didn't get in. All right, actually, I'm not going to say I almost didn't get in. I almost didn't go because I feared that I wouldn't get in because my press pass did not cover the centerpiece films, of which this is one. And uh, I got into the rush line where you just pay cash. And shout out again to Philadelphia Film Society I think at every sold-out screening, they did manage to get all of the rush lines in. 
This is the only one I rushed, but a friend of mine, shout out Kev, what up, brother? Uh, he rushed Glass Onion and was able to get in despite that having sold out like so fast. So if we pull up my review here, all I said was quiet performances are simultaneously explosive, a dichotomy that matches the story at large, which would sound basic to describe, but is just as complex as the characters. Wildly funny, but dryly so. I stand by that now. Um, I don't want to say too much about the plot because there are some developments that uh, shocked me in the moment. And a huge, huge, huge shout out to the actress Carrie Condon, who plays uh, Padraig's sister, uh, Siobhan. Oh my God, this name is going to fuck with me. I know it's Siobhan. The last name is S-U-I-L-L-E-A-B-H-A-I-N. And there's a little dashy thing over the U and over the second A. So, Swilavain? I don't know. I don't think they say it out loud. So, why should I task myself with such a thing? And also a supporting turn from Barry Keegan, Kogan, Keogan, Kogan, Kogan, Kegshong, Kegstand, from uh, Barry Kegstand. He's always incredible. We get a little reunion here of, uh, uh, what's it called? The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And so it's great to see him playing off of Colin Farrell. But as of this moment, now granted, I know that the whale with Brendan Fraser, Fraser, oh, Brendan Fraser is like the one that everyone wants to win best actor. And as a died in the wool Encino man fan, I would love to see it. Having not seen the whale yet right now, my hat is in the ring for Colin Farrell for best actor at this year's Oscars with the caveat, of course, that the Oscars are fucking dog shit. Um, He's just so good in it. He does more expression with just his little bushy little caterpillar eyebrows than uh, many actors can do with their entire body. Ooh, big burp. Merk burp. So yeah, The Banshees of Inisherin was the first film that I saw, and it was excellent. Second film that I saw, also excellent, was How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Daniel Goldhaber, Goldhaber, uh, who did Cam. He also... Uh, did an entry that I don't know if I saw off the top of my head for 50 States of Fright, uh, a show that was designed for Quibi, RIP, and I still stand by, I think Quibi was a good idea, implemented poorly and timed abysmally, but uh, I think there was something there, and uh, he did something for that, and all the 50, I don't know if I saw it, because it might have shit the bed before then, but 50 States of Fright had some pretty cool stuff in it. But How to Blow Up a Pipeline is based on the nonfiction novel by, what is his name? <coughs> oh my god, I'm so used to IMDb, so I wanted to, I think it's Andreas Malm. Either way, it is a nonfiction story about the benefits of uh, essentially crime in the face of climate catastrophe. I think anyone who listens to the show is in agreement that climate is changing, and a lot of the changes that it's undergoing are a result of the excesses of what we humans do in the name of industry and other such things. 
And so as we, uh, as our back gets closer and closer to the wall, and we start to wonder what to do about this, especially when, and I say this in all capital letters, the politicians that are all purchased by corporations and don't give a fuck about us. As that becomes increasingly clear, the question is, what do we do? What do we do when litigation and, you know, signing bills and doing all some other bureaucratic bullshit isn't as effective and as immediate as what is increasingly apparent uh, needs to be put in the front line? Now, what's cool about this movie is even though it's a nonfiction book, the film is a fiction movie that follows a collective of activists who decide the best thing that they can do, quite literally, is blow up a pipeline in Texas. And so it sort of takes a heist format, and it follows this diverse group of very well-motivated and well-performed actor, uh, well-performed characters, all done by well-performed actors, many of which who co-wrote, and the work that they do trying to get these homemade bombs affixed to a pipeline in Texas and to blow it up without any collateral damage except for the damage to the facility itself. When I say that this is breathlessly tense, I mean it. And what I like about the film is it doesn't necessarily take a position of, hey, we've got to go out there and commit crimes, nor does it take a position of, whoa, 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 anybody who commits these climate change crimes is a bad guy. It's actually very human and fair in its regard. It is just about the completion of this one act. And what we extrapolate from it thematically is what we individuals extrapolate from it thematically. It's absolutely fantastic, and it has an incredible incredible score uh let's shout out whoever did the score here it was done by gavin brivik who also did cam he did wild indian um what else is on this list i don't recognize anything else but uh it's all gonna be good work because this movie was fantastic i held my breath the whole time so how to blow up a pipeline I gave it four and a half stars out of five compared to the benches finisher with a good five. Third film I saw was a documentary called American Pain. Uh, this is a very cool documentary. Uh, it kind of reminded me of Pain and Gain, uh, the excellent Michael Bay movie, and the last time that The Rock did anything interesting. And American Pain is a documentary put on by CNN, which is important. Hold on to that little factoid that's coming back later. It's about the uh, opioid industry as it manifested in Florida, where the limitations to what could be done in selling and moving opiates, ugh, it, it like hurts me to even say that word, um, they had less restrictions. Therefore, you were able to build pain clinics. And it's kind of ironic because as somebody who has a uh, medical marijuana card, one of the fun things about the medical marijuana card is that, yes, marijuana is a medicine. But if we're all being honest, and we aren't, we would admit that a lot of the medical movement was just a sneaky way to get recreational weed legalized. It does help a lot of people, and if we had the opportunity to study it more, we could really refine 
how it helps people. Same goes for opiates. But in American Pain, it follows two young men, both bodybuilders, total meatheads, who decide to make pain clinics. And pain clinics is essentially you get some shitty doctor who goes, yeah, you're in pain, okay, you can get this many, this many oxycodone pills or whatever. And it's really just a bunch of junkies trying to get their high, and these pain clinics facilitate a way for you to get your high legally by going through, uh, what's the word, perfunctory medical motions. Ow, my back hurts. Oh, do you have an MRI? No. Oh, well, I have an MRI guy in the back. He'll give you an MRI. Then you go get your MRI, and the guy's like, oh, so your back hurts. Well, looking at your MRI, your back hurts. So uh, you can have as much oxycodone as you can take. So a lot of colorful characters come to the surface here, and it's really fascinating and equally heartbreaking to see what their effect was on the industry. The only limitation to this movie is that it sort of stops at the pain clinics and doesn't go one step higher. It pays lip service to the idea that these pharmaceutical companies are, are going to fill as many orders as they can without any regard to safety. If these doctors, air quotes there, say that there's a need for these pills, we're going to fucking pump them out of our pill factories. This is what we're going to do. And so a more complete documentary would go higher and go at the pharmaceutical companies. Um, this one doesn't, but that does not mean it's not great and does not shine a light on a really terrible thing. It's really fascinating. I just couldn't help but to think that in a world where like Jeopardy is brought to us by Moderna, a CNN Films movie probably receives some resistance in going that level higher to uh, you know the pharmaceutical companies. So whereas I would like to see that, who knows, maybe that'll be a sequel. Either way, absolutely fascinating documentary. I gave it three and a half stars here on my letterbox. The next movie that I saw was the latest from Quentin Depew, who many people know from Rubber, the killer tire movie. He did a couple years at the festival, probably his best work in my opinion, Deerskin. This one's called Smoking Causes Coughing, which tells the story of a Power Rangers-like team of monster I don't want to call them crime fighters because they're just fighting like a giant turtle monster. And uh, they each have each one of like the same way that the Power Rangers have like pterodactyl, mastodon. These have like uh, ammonia, nicotine, the ingredients of cigarettes. And during one of their battles, one of their members decides, like, not decides, one of their members finds it difficult to summon his powers. And their leader, a puppet rat who is a Lothario, who drools green slime, says, hey, listen, the reason you couldn't conjure your abilities is because the teamwork dynamic amongst the tobacco force, as they're called, is lacking. So I am going to send you guys on a retreat to work on your bonding. Yes, it's very weird. If you like Quentin Depew, you understand that this is well within his wheelhouse. 
that's really just a framing device because from there we follow them on their little retreat and throughout this retreat they tell stories to one another and each of these stories manifests as a short film again well within the wheelhouse of quentin depew if this is your kind of thing and it's very much my kind of thing it doesn't matter that it's barely a movie it only matters that it is highly absurd uh completely unique and extremely funny and this checks all of those boxes it is highly absurd it is very unique and it is extremely funny of course if this is not the kind of thing that you find funny you will hate it but this is the kind of thing that i find very funny so i did not hate it at all in fact i loved it and i gave it four stars smoking causes coughing uh, there are a couple images from this movie that will pop into my head in the weeks since I've seen it, and it still makes me laugh, which is the highest compliment that I can pay, but there's not much to say about it beyond that. Next one I saw was Oink. Oink um, is a stop-motion animation film by Masha Halberstad. Uh, what country is this from? I don't know. Ugh, I'm not sure. But it's a stop. It's an adorable stop motion film about a little girl and her new pet pig. And in the background of her and her new pet pig is the local sausage festival. You can see where this is going. It absolutely goes there. Uh, this is very charming. And as is standard with all stop motion movies, there are a lot of poop jokes, which we love. Uh, the animation's fantastic. And to its credit, it's a film that talks very frankly about dietary choices without beating you over the head with it. It is also a film that is just joyful, fun, and light. Uh, even though there is the ever-present threat of this little adorable piggy named Oink becoming a sausage, uh, it's not to the point where it like bums you out for the movie. It doesn't bum you out. Uh, very, very joyful, very, very enjoyable, and it's at 72 minutes. How can you How can you mess up? How can you fuck that up? You can't. Uh, this is one that I saw like very early in the day, and it was a great way to kick off the day, get warmed up into it. I was there with my buddy Grant. Shout out, Grant. What's up, brother? And uh, we had a grand old time just laughing our tokuses off at Oink. You know what? Let me, let me look up and see what country this is from, because I believe it's the first feature-length stop-motion animated film from this country. So let's pull up the IMDb and see. This is from the Netherlands. It's Belgian. The language in it is Dutch, so that's the region. But it's real funny. Uh, it had vibes of a film that I had on my end-of-year list a few years back called The Old Man Movie or Old Man the Movie. Uh, very similar, raucous, not as adult as that movie was. Like, you could take a kid to see this. But uh, to its credit, it had me thinking about my dietary choices. Next film I saw was one of my absolute favorites. It's called Next Exit. It's written and directed by Molly Elfman. Uh, I believe that's how it's pronounced. Her first name is M-A-L-I, Molly, Mally, Malai, Mali. And this takes place in a world where science has proved that ghosts are real and that there is some sort of an afterlife. And 
so Karen Gillan, she's kind of a side character. She plays like an, an Elizabeth Holmes type, uh, who is basically put out a call saying we are studying the afterlife. And now that it is confirmed, we need subjects, meaning we need people to come to our facility to be killed so that we can study them crossing over in a world where there is an afterlife. Um, what was that Jason Siegel movie? It was like the discovery or something like that, that didn't that use this similar concept, but didn't quite capitalize on it. This capitalizes on it really, really big, in a really big way, you know, in a world where there are ghosts proving that there is an afterlife, life becomes a little bit less valuable. And so you ask yourself, what kind of person drives across country to go to this facility to be killed? Well, the answer that you have in your head is that answer. And so in this movie, we have Rose and Teddy, played by Katie Parker and Rahul Kohli, who are uh, both alums of The Haunting of Bly Manor, the excellent Haunting of Bly Manor. Oh, no, sorry, Hill House is the excellent one. Bly Manor didn't quite do it for me, but really great performers. and. Against their will, they are in the same car going across country in order to make it to San Francisco in time to do this study. And as we all know, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And that's what this movie is. But to reduce it to that would be rather cheap. And uh, this is just one of those movies that I found so supremely moving. There was two moments where not necessarily anything big happens plot wise but the right words executed the right way brought out full-on ugly cry from me it's a great shell for performances from coley and parker hope i'm pronouncing rahul coley's name right but uh, his inevitable superstardom is very well earned the guy is fucking phenomenal uh really really great movie it thoughtfully explores what a post-death world would be like but it also kind of keeps the film local and keeps it about our protagonists in a way that's very touching and thoughtful. Next exit. Highly, highly recommend. I don't know when this is coming out or where, but uh, you're not going to want to miss it. This is followed by Decision to Leave, another film that I gave a perfect score to. This is Park Chan-wook, Chan-wook Park, Wook Park Chan. I, it, I've seen it credited every way, but he is the absolute master behind films like Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Lady Vengeance, Old Boy, Thirst. Undoubtedly one of the best filmmakers worth working today, both in a storytelling capacity as well as in just the film technique capacity. And this is no exception. We often bandy about the term Hitchcockian uh, to mixed accuracy, and I think that here... It absolutely applies. Very dense, long story about a detective and a potential suspect who he sort of falls for as he's investigating the mysterious death of her husband. This movie has a lot to it. I don't want to go too deep into the plot any further than that because it's quite surprising frequently and it's such a complex plot that if i were to describe it to you beat by beat it would take the rest of this episode <clears throat> and that's no good for anybody feel that burp it was the first beer burp in 31 days and in order to squelch it down i'm gonna take another sip of my beer <sighs> how it's done decision to leave is thrilling it's understated 
It's very funny. Uh, I'm going to be haunted by the ending of it for a very long time. The highest compliment I could possibly pay to Decision to Leave is that at multiple points in the movie, I stopped paying attention to what was happening just so I could drool all over myself in awe of the imagery and craft that I was seeing on the screen. I would like to watch this 100 more times. I would like a 4K disc. I would like to show people the 4K disc and do that thing where I'm watching the movie, but I'm not actually watching the movie. I'm watching them watch the movie. And then when they pick up their phone, I don't say anything because I don't want to be a dick. But deep down, I'm like kind of mad. And then they fall asleep. And I'm like, what the hell? Why'd you fall asleep? And then I'm stuck watching the movie, but I don't mind because the movie's so fucking good. That's decision to leave. And it is another one that is just unmissable. I think that might even be available now. But uh, it's... This will undoubtedly be on my end-of-year list. Spoiler alert. After Decision to Leave, saw a kind of minor movie called Attachment. Uh, One of the cool things about horror nowadays is that we're sort of not necessarily divorcing, but moving away from Christian and Catholic mythos in order to tell our tales. Like, you watch The Exorcist. It's not necessarily a a heavily religiously tinged movie. Yeah. Uh, that might not be accurate. But, like, you don't gotta know more than the devil's bad and Jesus is good for that to work. Attachment takes the same sort of possession story, and instead of it being about a demon, it's about a dybbuk. And a dybbuk in Jewish mysticism is a lost soul stuck between worlds that attaches itself to a human being. Essentially a demonic possession, at least in a functional sense. And Attachment tells the story of a Dybbuk and how it affects a burgeoning romance between two women. And it's it's very well performed across the board. And I was actually more struck by the romance aspect of it than by the horror aspect of it. But it is quite scary as well. Um, just a solid thriller. I, I would imagine this is going to show up on, on like Shudder or something. And if it does, you should absolutely check it out. Not much else to say about that one, but it is quite good. Similar to that is Noah Segan's directorial Day Blue. Day Blue, see, I I messed that up. He played Kid Blue in Ryan Johnson's Looper. That's who Noah Segan is. And he wrote and directed Blood Relatives, a story about an ageless vampire whose daughter, who is half vampire herself, shows up in his life. It's a road movie because he constantly has to live on the road per his condition as a vampire. And uh, Noah Segan was actually there for this. He gave a great Q&A afterwards, and he described the movie as a dad movie because it's something that came to him when he became a father. Very, very clear on the surface of the film. It's... A very charming story of a vampire and his daughter bonding, exposing their vulnerabilities to one another. It's also rather funny. Um, It does a little bit have that look that a direct-to-shutter movie often has, where it's a little bit gray and gloomy. It's just like the nature of mid-budget digital filmmaking. But I think the performances and the script are so strong that it's easy to forgive the visuals. And it's very thoughtfully lit. So even if the medium doesn't transfer that to the experience, you can see the artistry on display. 
And Noah Segan really exhibits some strong chops as a writer and director, as well as an actor. This one I know for a fact is going to be on Shudder, so definitely worth checking out. Um, it was actually kind of remarkable how many films at the Film Fest this year had a Shudder tag before them. So Blood Relatives, definitely recommend. Next up was one of my absolute favorites from the Fest. It's a, I guess we'll call it a procedural, called Holy Spider. It's from director Ali Abbasi, whose film Border is one that haunts my mind. And whereas I think Border's a good selling point, because that's a profoundly strange film. And if you're into that, you will be into this. But I cannot imagine a film more different than that. This is not in a fantasy world. This is not a film where a troll lady has a penis vagina. This is a procedural that follows two simultaneous stories. That of a journalist who is entering the holy city, holy Iranian city of Mashhad, investigating a bunch of serial killings of sex workers. It simultaneously follows the serial killer himself. Now, what's interesting about this city is this is a city that is very patriarchal. This is a city that religion is tied to the state in a way that is absolutely terrifying. So her being a woman in this society is uh, its not very conducive to her mission. It's also remarkably conducive to the mission of the serial killer. And what's so fun about it... Eh, fun is probably not the right word. Uh, what's so fun about it is... Uh, we get to see how the state sort of juggles the idea of justice against the idea of morality while having a completely skewed idea of morality. Because there's a large contingent of people who are supportive of the serial killer because since he only targets sex workers, they see it as a method of cleaning up sin, ignorant to the fact that murder is sin. At the same time, he is killing people, so the cops have to stop him. What's so cool about this movie is not only does it show how this society both supports and enables a serial killer, it also shows how it can blind said serial killer to the fact that he tells himself he is acting in the name of morals and justice, but he's actually just acting on the same fetishistic impulse as so many serial killers before him. It is a deeply, deeply terrifying film, and it is beautifully shot. Uh, one of the absolute best of the fest. I gave it four and a half stars here, and goddamn, I, it, it's going to haunt you. Next up is a documentary called The Thief Collector. A uh, really solid documentary. It kind of punches above its weight in terms of what it wants to establish. Like, it doesn't quite back up the story that it's trying to tell. At the same time, it's such a compelling story in its own right that it's just too much fun. Basically, it's the story of a couple that, when they both had passed away, amidst their estate, was a long-lost painting from an artist that is a very valuable painting and one that was believed to have been stolen. So the question is, who stole the painting? 
And so what this documentary posits is that the people who owned it did not come to it through a sale or anything like that. It's that they stole it themselves. Furthermore, perhaps a lot of their art collection was obtained through similar sticky fingers. It ultimately leads to a late-in-the-movie development, we'll say, that is rather shocking and is the moment where I think the film kind of goes above and beyond its own reach. But that's the fun of it. And uh, one of the catches here is I'm a big fan of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and this is largely narrated by Glenn Howerton, who plays Dennis. And he also plays one of the members of this couple in all of the reenactments. His wife uh, produced the film, so it makes sense that that would be uh, how it goes out. The Thief Collector, I, I don't know if that's getting a release, but you should check it out. And we should move on to the next film, which is one of the absolute best of the fest. Sick of Myself. Sick of Myself is a very, very gross movie in the best of ways. It is a satire about a woman who, when frustrated with the fact that her social circles don't really pay attention to her. They mostly pay attention to her art world darling boyfriend. She finds a uh, recently outlawed Russian pharmaceutical that if you take it, one of the side effects is severe physical deformity. And so she takes way too much of it in order to be physically deformed, does not tell anybody that she took these pills, Instead, pretending that her sudden and severe physical deformity is as the result of a mystery condition. Therefore, everybody pays attention to her, and she's able to relay this into a form of celebrity. It's a stomach-turning movie, but it's very funny, and it's very dark. It is a scathing satire of two concerning aspects of our world one is the look at me culture likes retweets all of that look at me look at me look at me these empty little hits of serotonin have become a a force that 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 moves the world i don't want to say forward i mean it in a lateral sense but the uh the fuel that is the engine of online society is that of unearned attention and this is a scathing indictment of that as well as a scathing indictment of a world that creates a hierarchy out of suffering fetishizes suffering makes suffering desirable because of the social currency that it gains you and oftentimes monetizes suffering and this is a absolutely brutal skewering of that And it has an incredible central performance from Christine Kuja-Thorpe, who plays Signe, the uh, woman who is undergoing this. You gotta see it to believe it. I loved everything about it. I imagine it could rub people the wrong way. I imagine that there's a million other messages to be taken from this that I have missed. But uh, it is a movie that you absolutely must see. Sick of Myself. Another really solid documentary that I saw is called Chop 
and steel. S-T-E-E-L-E. I don't know if uh, any listeners remember this, but you should Google the names that I'm about to drop on you so that you can get some context. Uh, K-Strass, the yo-yo master. That's the letter K hyphen S-T-R-A-S-S. As well as Chef Keith. Not Chief Keith, the rapper. You should also Google some great tunes from that guy. But Chef Keith. These two are characters that were created by two comedians who go by the name of Joe Pickett and Nick Pruer. Uh, these are the guys behind the Found Footage Festival. If you haven't heard of that, what the Found Footage Festival is, is these two guys collect VHS tapes from a variety of sources, thrift stores, dumpsters, whatever, and they tour the strange discoveries that they find, such as a How Do Babies Get Made tape that is narrated by Howie Mandel, or a McDonald's training video that teaches you how to properly wash the windows of McDonald's. Supremely weird shit. Workout videos, adult films... And this is their career, is going on tour and exhibiting these videos. While they were on tour, oftentimes they have to do morning television. If you've ever watched morning television, it is typically vacuous. And very quickly, Joe and Nick catch on to how vacuous this is and how much they hate doing morning television. So as a result, they discover that the morning television, air quotes, heavy air quotes, the morning television journalists, they uh, don't do a lot of research. They don't really do their due diligence. They would often get details of the found footage festival incorrect because they're operating and trafficking solely in fluff. And that's what morning shows are. It's, it's fluff. You just gotta, you gotta have someone on there. They're gonna cook a little something, blah, blah, blah. So they started creating these characters for morning shows, such as K-Stress, the yo-yo master, who purportedly is a yo-yo professional who uses yo-yoing to teach kids about important things. The joke being that he's absolutely terrible at yo-yo and fucks up his performance. Chef Keith, he is a master of what you can do with leftovers. And so he goes on morning shows and <laughs> creates these insane food items out of leftovers that nobody in their right mind would would think are, are creative culinary creations. But if you're a morning show host, you just got to taste it and be like, wow, that's delicious. Although I got to say, one of the things that they do with Thanksgiving leftovers, which is essentially an ice cream cone, but instead of ice cream, it's mashed potatoes. And then you put gravy and corn and cranberries. I would eat that. I think that's actually a good idea. But I'm fucked up. And so, you know, a maniac. I made chicken and waffles out of chicken nuggets and Eggo waffle flavored Pop-Tarts the other day. And it was and uh, Taco Bell hot sauce, and it was damn good. So uh, I'm not the one to judge. But one of the oh, two of the characters that uh, Joe and Nick create are Chop and Steel, a duo of strong men who do strong men feats. Only the feats that they do are not impressive, and Joe and Nick are schlubby guys like myself. They are not buff; they're just normal, average Joes. Funny stuff to see, but when you are a multimedia conglomerate who has been lampooned on their very own show, 
things tend to get a little bit litigious. And that's what this film is about, is the lawsuit that was lobbed at Nick and Joe for their Chop and Steal characters, and then the fallout from that. The first half of the movie is mostly just uh, a background that I've already given you, sorry, and uh, footage of the pranks that they've pulled and just a little background of these two supremely charming, supremely funny guys. But it slowly becomes a documentary that is about friendship and about, you know, how their careers were affected being the little guy standing up against this Goliath of a media conglomerate. Uh, It's extremely charming. It's very funny. It comes to a satisfying close and a close that's like almost magical in a way and speaks to the medicinal and whimsical nature of comedy and, you know, the necessity of comedy in a world that oftentimes errs on the side of self-serious. And uh, as someone who has attended a found footage festival before, it was uh, very, very cool to see that immortalized in documentary form. Again, another one, I don't know if it's getting a release anytime soon, but when it does, it's like a really light, fun, good time. The next documentary I saw is also a light, fun, good time, and I believe is actually currently available on Amazon, and I highly recommend you check it out. It's called Goodnight Oppie, O-P-P-Y, which is short for Opportunity, the name of one of the duo of Mars rovers that we sent up in, I want to say, 2000. And this is just a straightforward documentary about NASA and the team that put rovers on Mars. And the original plan was to have these rovers operate for 90 days. And it was just a mad scramble to get data off of the surface of Mars for 90 days. But Oppie, one of the the robots, it is rather funny that currently, right now, as I speak, Mars is a planet inhabited, as far as we know, entirely by robots. Oppie lasted for a decade and then some. I think almost two decades. And so this is a very moving and charming story about the total nerds, and I say that with love and respect, that managed to land robots on Mars and use them to explore our knowledge of the universe in a way that's profoundly moving and profoundly touching. Um, I didn't expect to get teary-eyed for for what is essentially a fucking drone but you really do. And at a time where the most the most well-funded space exploration is in the realm of billionaires who aren't scientists. They're just the the Bezoses and Musks of the world whose only superpower is they had one good idea once. And even though they obviously have brain power, their superpower is money. And so when you see these NASA scientists whose superpower is actual brain power, actual thought, actual love and care for what they do, inspired not by financial gain or bragging rights, but by legitimate curiosity as to our place in an unfathomably large universe, it's quite moving to see and if ever there was an advertisement to how we should be funding some of the big questions that 
just the mere existence of the universe poses, it is right here. And it's just such a joy to watch. Um, an anecdote from the film is that astronauts on the space station and other uh, other such pursuits have a song that they play every morning. It's different every morning, but it's something that they play to get everybody on the same page and inspire everybody to work hard and, and follow through with their mission. And one of the refrains in this film is each day's selection of a song. And it's always thematically appropriate. And all I could think watching this movie was like, if it was my job to come up with the song every day, one that's thematically appropriate and thoughtful, I would run out of juice. And these people whose brains are dedicated to putting a fucking robot on Mars and having it scoop up soil samples and, and face just crazy environmental challenges to also be able to come up with a daily song that is thematically appropriate feels impossible. And now, granted, I am operating on an offensively low level of brain power, so maybe I'm not the guy, but god damn it, just such a moving film, and one that you can watch right now and absolutely should. Actually, looking at my list, I've seen a lot of really good documentaries this year. I don't always move towards documentaries at the film festival, but... I did this year, and the more and more I think about it, the more and more I, I look at what my standard media diet is and how heavy it is on true crime and science podcasts. It's no wonder that I, I it's no wonder that I that I'm you know watching documentaries. The next one is called Mister Organ. Now, Mister Organ is from David Ferrier, who did Tickled. And the format of Tickled was rather simple. Uh, basic journalistic due diligence uncovers a much larger conspiracy, not conspiracy, but a much larger thing of which our filmmaker, David Ferrier, uh, unwittingly becomes a part. Same for Mr. Organ. It starts with a privately owned parking lot in New Zealand, New Zealand, a privately owned parking lot in which the owners of this parking lot charge an insane amount of money to have your car rescued from being booted. I forget what the term they used there was, but uh, booted is what we would use here in Philadelphia. They put a boot on your car. And so, yeah, while you know the PPA here, if they boot your car, you got to pay a fee and do that. It's exorbitant, but not nearly as exorbitant as to what's going on here. And so investigating this for just like a local interest article, Ferrier uncovers that the man actually tasked with placing the boot has a little bit of a history. And in investigating this guy, he discovers that this guy has a very expansive history of doing unsavory things. If I could lob one criticism at this movie, it would be that Ferrier himself seems to be like poking the bear. But at the same time, the subject of this documentary is a real fuck of a bear, and he deserves much more than being poked. So whereas it does reach a point that you stop feeling as much empathy for Farrier as a better movie would want, it's such a crazy, gleeful unraveling of a psyche that we've all seen shades of in our own life. Um, 
be it in ourselves and others, that is just absolutely fascinating. And Farrier is such a pleasant and genuinely funny, curious guy that it's hard to really fault it for that. Uh, you'll notice I'm sort of dancing around what the larger picture is, and that's partially because it's hard to define and partially because you really got to discover it on yourself. Mr. Organ is something that you are going to want to watch when you see it. You may not love it, but you definitely will not believe it. The next flick I saw was absolutely killer. It was called Burning Days. It's the story of a prosecutor entering a new town, and it's a town that has its own... Government's not the word, because the prosecutor would be part of the government, but it has its own sort of sub-government, like a boys' club, if you will, and of the notables in town. And so this prosecutor is a no-nonsense, all-business kind of guy, and in reaching out to the locals and trying to ingratiate himself as, you know, one of us, if you will, but keeping a line of demarcation of, I am one of you, I am part of the community, but I am the prosecutor. In doing that, finds himself potentially tied to a crime that he has to prosecute. I don't want to say too much, but it reminded me a lot of something like Chinatown, where it's specifically because there is water politics going on, but also just because it it has a sort of noir-esque, uh, you know, this guy who's got a job to do ends up chiseling his way into some larger, more nefarious thing. I don't want to say too, too much, because again, this is one that's more about the experience than about the resolution. But I have been thinking about the final shot of it for quite some time. Uh, truly, truly haunting stuff and very, very well performed. The country of origin for Burning Days is... I don't know off the top of my head, and I'm just always so afraid to say the wrong one. Um, This was made in... Jesus. Okay, so the countries of origin on IMDb is Turkey, France, Germany, Netherlands, Greece, and Croatia. They speak Turkish in it, but Croatia is where it takes place. That I can confirm. Uh, the filmmaker is Eric Alper. Or, sorry, not Eric. Eamon Alper. Sorry, guys. Long day. Um, and he's from Turkey, and this takes place in Croatia. Whatever. Either way, it's it's a movie that's filled with all of these like delicious ambiguities uh, that even go down so far as like, and this isn't even explicitly talked about, but I did find myself like wondering about the sexuality of our lead because uh, it does tie into what's happening. Um, it's one of those movies that's like a window into a culture that I'm unfamiliar with, but there's all of these parallels to the idea of like boys club politics. And societal trends that I think are generally universal. They certainly hold true here in America. And they hold true uh, in burning days. Been thinking about this one a lot. Uh, Again, I don't know if this one's getting any sort of release. I'm sure it will. But it's one that you should definitely check out. 
We're a little more than halfway through this, so uh, let's just let's just plow on through. The next one is called The Night of the Twelfth. I'm going to tell you something that's very important to the enjoyment of this movie. The Night of the Twelfth is a police procedural that reminded me a lot of Zodiac, and it's essentially just the years following a truly horrific murder and the detectives that are assigned to trying to figure out who did this and why. It is based on a true story. And to jump back, uh, the, uh, why am I blanking on the name of it? Holy Spider also was based loosely on a true story. This is directly based on a true story. And it is a crime that is, as far as I know, currently unsolved. I did not know this going into it. So the ending left me a little bit cold because I assumed it would be solved. That is not the movie's fault. That is my fault. And had I known going into it, I probably would have had a warmer response. But having learned about the crime uh, in the, the days since seeing it, this definitely was one of my favorites of the fest, specifically because it really does remind me of Zodiac. And uh, Zodiac is one of the best American films of all time, certainly one of the best of the last 20 years. The Night of the Twelfth, it's French, La Nuit du Twelfth, or I guess it would be uh, Dose. La Nuit du Dose. Take that lunchtime French class. And um, I accidentally clicked the Burger King app, an advertisement for it on uh, Letterboxd, which is wild to think. Not much to say about this. There are a few images that really stick in my head. There are a few plot beats that deeply upset me. Um, but similar to Zodiac, it speaks to this idea of like, there are more victims than just the dead. It's those people who have devoted the most valuable resource, time, to solving a crime and have nothing to show for it, except maybe a better understanding of just their own place, which is valuable, but hardly worth a life. And um, if you like Zodiac, you will like this. I liked it a lot. The Night of the Twelfth. And now we reach the one movie I didn't much care for. It's called Husera. And it's not bad. I wouldn't call it bad. But it is a movie, uh, it's kind of your standard woman is pregnant and thinks she might be haunted movie. And it doesn't quite develop further than that. Um, the woman who introduced the film from the film society gave a really strong background as to the legend of Husera, which is a Mexican folklore character. Um, I'm not going to get into it here. I would just suggest that you look it up. But one of the weird things is I was, her story that she told of the folklore was really cool. And the movie did not capitalize on that at all. And while it is scary and it has some really good imagery and it's not boring in any way, it's the type of movie that just doesn't make good on its own promise to show you something new. And I think it suffers from a lack of likable characters. And if you listen to the show, you know that I do not require likable characters. In fact, I love movies that are populated almost entirely by fucks. Uh, this is not by fucks, though. These are just people who are just regular bad decision makers who are just all a bunch of wet rags who don't communicate with one another. Um, 
I also have like a personal bias against like our lead character when she's going off about how she's haunted. She does so after it's established that she is just like a fucking liar. So the movie wants us to sort of be like, oh man, it sucks that nobody's believing her, but I just couldn't get there. And like her husband in the movie, you know, he's just, he's a dish rag. And it's just so hard for me to find empathy there. And even though I don't require empathy, I think a level of it is necessary for horror to work. And it just doesn't work here. So on a surface level, there's a lot of really great imagery and spooky moments. But in terms of like sticking with me, it it just has no ability to do that on account of just it, it keeps you at arm's length because there's nobody to identify with. But um, I, I wouldn't say don't watch it. If I watch this late at night by myself, I, I'd probably be pretty freaked. You know, I think it's worth checking out. Next film was one of my favorites, The Innocent. Um, kind of reminds me of like a Woody Allen movie. Kind of reminds me of uh, like a Soderbergh movie, which is a weird mix. But uh, it's written and directed by its star. Um who goes by the name of Louis Garrel. It's a French movie. It has, uh, oh, I'm going to fuck up her name, Noemi Merlant, who is like the French star du jour and deserving of every minute of it. And uh, our writer-director stars as a guy whose mother teaches acting classes in prison and marries one of the students. And once he gets out of jail, uh, our hero, uh, Abel is his name, is understandably not a fan of this guy who, even though he clearly loves this guy, you know, loves his mother, uh, he doesn't trust him and has a million reasons to do so. And he can't help but to accidentally through mistrust, get drawn into a miniature heist that his mother's new spouse is undergoing. And so it's like a fun, talky comedy that has the underpinnings of a heist behind it. And it's uh, it's very funny and quite tense and ultimately very charming. And I think it lands in a spot that is rather mature for these types of things. It doesn't have a clean, ho-hum, doop-de-doop-de-doo ending. It has a complicated ending. And one that, although charming, left me feeling kind of fucked up. And I think that that is worth uh, mentioning. And this is one that I would say go out of your way to see. Um, Another movie here. Now, this is interesting. It was billed at the film festival as Boy from Heaven. But on Letterboxd, it translates to Cairo Conspiracy. And this was a this is a good movie in the moment. It hasn't stuck with me as much as I hoped it to be. But it's uh, about a boy about a boy. It's about a boy who goes to a religious college in Cairo and unwittingly becomes the point of contact for a law enforcement agency that's trying to investigate the connections between the religion and the state. And I know in the area of the Middle East, religion is tied to the state, uh, more expressly than it is here. We like to pretend that there's a separation of church and state here, but um, in practice, it's not, and it's fucked up, uh, really fucked up. And uh, this 
kind of plays around in that world. It's very compelling in the moment. I struggle to speak about it now because I, I just don't remember much of it. I remember being very moved by it in the moment. I remember being relatively thrilled by it, but I don't think I had the historical context to really understand what was being established through all of the themes of the movie. But the themes that I could grasp were the aforementioned bonding of church and state, uh, the idea of the the pedestal that we put a religious figure on, as well as the mistrust that is often fostered by the authoritative forces that operate with an assumption of our trust. You know, we see that here. I think in the last couple of years, there's been a dissolving of of trust in our institutions. And shamefully, our institutions have very much earned that trust. And this movie kind of holds a mirror to that just in a culture that was not of my own. So where I was able to relate to it in an adjacent sense, it was hard to relate to directly. That said, it was such an, uh, a compelling time during watching it that I would like to watch it again after doing a little reading. Boy from Heaven, worth checking out. We got eight left. Are you with me? Of course you are. So the next one is Causeway, a movie that I did not plan to see at all. I planned to see a music documentary called Meet Me in the Bathroom, but it was sold out. And even though I could get in on the strength of my press pass, I was afraid that it would run late and that I wouldn't be able to make it to the next movie, which we'll get to in a second. So instead, I just went to the venue of the next movie and saw whatever was playing, which was Causeway. And boy, howdy, am I glad I did. Um, it is about a young woman who is discharged from the army because she has a brain injury. And it's just about her getting her life together in New Orleans and trying to get back to a basal state from which she initially tried to escape by going to the military. The young woman is played by Jennifer Lawrence and a man that she becomes friends with and who shares top billing in the movie is played by Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, if you're alive, you know that these are two of the best actors working today. And this is such a great shell for both of their talents, especially in a world where Lawrence has become such a superstar that we forget that the reason she is a superstar is that she's a tremendous actress. This really has her digging deep and going to the core of her powers as a performer. And Brian Tyree Henry, he's a guy who is like on the cusp of becoming a superstar. He's just old, reliable, supporting man. And he gives just a heartbreaking performance here. It's a really short movie. It's a quick one. It's actually... It's almost plotless. If there's one fault that I could throw at the movie, it's that late in the game, it tries to invoke some plot for the sake of creating drama. And even though in a vacuum it works, it's it's like so wholly unnecessary for this kind of a movie. I'd want to call it a hangout movie, except that it's not as playful as it could be. But um, it's a feature debut from Lila Nujbauer, who did uh, the most thoughtful Q&A that I experienced at the festival afterwards. Uh, I have a history of working with adults with brain injuries, and one of the most impressive things about this movie is that it does use the brain injury as both a plot and story uh, uh, thrust. It, it, 
but it doesn't lean on it in a way uh, to quote the buddy that I saw it with. You know, it doesn't go simple, Jack, and instead makes it very realistic because even though that is a part of the story and an integral part of the story, it's not actually at the core of the narrative. At the core of the narrative is out-of-place people trapped in a place where they feel out of place, but like finding family there, finding home there. And it it was profoundly moving. And it's always a surprise when you go into a fest film not knowing what it is, not even particularly being interested in it, and then being blown away by it, which is very much the case with Causeway. I cannot recommend it enough. And given the star power behind it, I think that it's safe to assume that this will absolutely be available soon, if not already. And so the movie that I upended my schedule for was Weird, the Al Yankovic story. Weird Al was my very first concert, and it remains one of the best that I've ever seen. And I heard through the grapevine that there was a slight chance that Mr. Yankovic himself would be in attendance at the screening, and indeed he was. Just for an intro, he didn't do a Q&A, but uh, Weird, the Al Yankovic story, is hilarious. Like, jaw on the floor hilarious. This is a Roku movie. It is currently available as of this week. You can watch it on Roku. And while I would recommend that you go out of your way to watch it as fast as possible, I lament that this is not in theaters because the theatrical experience was to die for. It sings with a full crowd to respond to. And so the combination of Al being there and of everybody in the room, a sold-out crowd, all being people who grew up with the work of Weird Al, we were in a frenzy by the end, and it was just so much fun. Highly, highly recommend. If Walk Hard upended the biopic by lampooning it perfectly, and then Rocket Man reclaimed it by making sort of an anti-biopic that ended up being the best musical biopic ever made, for my money. This sort of skews left from all that. It's a parody of biopics, because Weird Al is, like, scandal-free. He's a vegetarian, he doesn't drink, he's generally received as a nice guy, he's a goofball. Um, but he's also the frontman of the most talented and prominent cover band that ever lived. He's probably the most famous and one of the most skilled accordion players who has ever lived. This is a parody of biopics, but it's much more in tune with something like UHF, where, yeah, it has the shell of a biopic parody, but it's really just like a kitchen sink comedy, like Airplane, where they're just throwing everything at the wall. And it's such a joke a minute goofball parade of cameos and references that uh, there's there's no room for you to be disappointed by it. It's just nonstop goofs. And I would say 99% of the gags land. And that 1%, like, you just miss it because it's so fast. If you're not a fan of Weird Al, you will find it funny. If you are a fan of Weird Al, you will find it crazy funny. And the best part about it is Daniel Radcliffe gives a performance that if this were an actual biopic, he'd probably get an Oscar. It is so committed 
so demented. He is up there with your Austin Butler and Elvis, with your Taron Edgerton in Rocket Man, with not your Robbie Malik in Bohemian Rhapsody, with like all of these great performances. He's up there doing that, and it's in the name of goofiness. I I I wish there was a way to describe it beyond just gushing at how goofy it is, but I guess that's probably the most appropriate way because this is a Weird Al movie. If there's going to be a Weird Al biopic, and there is, this is how it simply has to be done. And Radcliffe is killer. He's also got like 700-pack abs complete with comb gutters. And Evan Rachel Wood plays Madonna in it. And like, home run. She is... Demented is the word for every performance in this movie. Um, I just, I wish that you could watch it in a full room as opposed to by yourself, but these are the breaks. I'm sure that it'll get a cult classic following and will be, will be shown in a public setting sometime in the future. The next movie I saw was actually the one I was most excited for at the outset. It is the Aaron Moorhead, Justin Benson collaboration, Something in the Dirt. Uh, those who listen to the show know that I am head over heels with this creative duo. They did Spring, Resolution, Synchronic, The Endless. Um, these guys put out heady, hardcore, thoughtful sci-fi. And Something in the Dirt, their quarantine project, is no different. And it follows two guys, played by Benson and Moorhead, who witness something expressly supernatural and try to document it in a documentary. And what's cool about the format of this film is that what we're watching is sort of the product of that documentary. It's sort of its own thing. And in doing this weird double layer of meta text, not only are they putting forth some crazy, thoughtful science fiction ideas, but they're also commenting on the inherent falsity that comes with pointing a camera at something. It's indescribable. It's very funny. It's pretty upsetting in terms of the the larger considerations that they get to, but in the Benson and Moorhead world, it exhibits uh, an enhancement in their screenplays, an enhancement in their abilities and thoughtfulness as filmmakers. And even though I think they came out the gate extremely strong, it has been wonderful to watch them grow. Um, I don't want to say too much because it is sort of a spoiler alert. Uh, there's spoilers all over it. That said, I don't think it comes to any conclusive answers. It's meant to be ambiguous. It's meant to sort of leave you hanging. And um, this is one that, like, I'm a buy. When this comes out, I'm going to buy it because I don't miss what they put out. And damn it, they put out some great shit. Next one I don't have much to say about, even though it was excellent. Kids versus Aliens is... Um, Directed by Jason Eisner. It's sort of an expansion of his short film in VHS 2. The Slumber Party Alien Abduction, I think it's called. Um, It is and isn't an expansion upon that. But we are currently in in, in a drought of good alien movies. We have cool shit like Arrival, which I think was perfect. But that's more about the thematic considerations of aliens. Um... This is straight up just, aliens are here, they're going to kill you, run. And that's all it is. It's like 70 minutes long, bunch of kids at a house party, aliens show up, 
and now a bunch of little kids that love making movies in their own time and a bunch of teenagers that are too cool for that kind of shit are now face-to-face with a bunch of goopy aliens that do gory shit, and they gotta fuck them up. Doesn't get any better than that. You know, it is what it is. I, I wish that... I do wish it went a little bigger, but I also really appreciate the fact that it was just hour 15 minutes, aliens fucking shit up, a bunch of hilarious uh, Monster Squad Goonies-style kids having a blast dispatching goopy aliens. There's one gore gag that was was like physically upsetting, and it totally rocked. Uh, definite midnight cult classic ingredients here. Hopefully that plays out. I got to double feature that with Christmas Bloody Christmas, which is the latest from Joe Bagos, Bigos, Bagos, I don't know who also did Bliss and VFW. Um, admittedly, this is my first experience with Begos's work, but I'm going to go and watch all the rest of his movies because Christmas Bloody Christmas was excellent. It's a neon-drenched, blood-soaked slasher action movie, I guess would be the term, about... And so the, the, the premise is a little bit high concept, but it has to be. It's... The Department of Defense decommissioned a bunch of their defense robots and repurposed them as Christmas decorations. So now there's these robotic Santa Clauses, Santa Clauses in storefronts nationwide. And this is a town with a Christmassy decorated main drag, which, as I understand it, is a real town that gave Bagos and his team carte blanche to do what they want. And there's one of these robotic Santas, and it goes haywire and starts fucking killing. And we follow the exploits of Tori, played by Riley Dandy, who is an incredible final girl. And because she's like already savvy, she's a rocker, she owns a record store, she's planning on spending Christmas Eve just picking up a Tinder date and fucking. And, uh, but oops, now there's a robotic Santa that is bloodthirsty. And it's a movie that that could coast on just that premise, but ends up supplying some really compelling characters throughout. Uh, very well performed, both her and Sam Delich, Delish, 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 uh, who plays Robbie. These are two guys that are just yeah, and uh, two guys, two characters that end up on the wrong end of this robotic Santa, and they gotta fuck shit up. But real fire. Tangible explosions, tangible dripping blood, a wickedly dark sense of humor, and an, just an untamable foul mouth throughout the whole thing. Exactly my flavor of movie. Absolutely killer soundtrack. And Jeff Daniel Phillips shows up. And there's a rule that if Jeff Daniel Phillips shows up, even if a movie is terrible, it can't be all terrible because he's in it. But this movie is actually fucking phenomenal i cannot wait to buy it uh i want to show it to everybody it was great like even though the transition culturally from uh halloween to christmas i think shamefully passes over the best holiday thanksgiving this was actually a really nice end of october way to transition into christmas and uh i i couldn't recommend it enough christmas bloody christmas
the best movie I saw at the fist is the next one. There's only three left. Bear with me. Rebel. Rebel is written and directed by Adil LRB and Bilal Falah. They recently did Ms. Marvel. Uh, they also did Batgirl, which WB should release, but they're too busy being buttfuckers about it. This is a perfect film. It follows a man who... I want to make sure I get the right country. He goes to Syria to help out and ends up unwittingly becoming radicalized into a terrorist organization. His little brother in Belgium, who sees videos of this and is struggling with either joining or avoiding his brother who he idolizes, and their mother, who's doing her best to try and keep her family on the up and up. I didn't plan to see this at all. But in the introduction before Kids vs. Aliens, one of the Philadelphia Film Society members said, this is a movie that no distributor has picked up yet, and you would do well to go see it because you might not have a chance to see it otherwise. That's like candy to me. I can't resist something like that. And oh my god, I am so glad I did. He also described it as a Michael Bay movie if Michael Bay had better characters. Now, while I agree with the sentiment of that, I don't think that all is lost in terms of Michael Bay and his characters, because I think some of his movies, some, have great characters. Pain and Gain, for example. But I'm picking up what he's putting down, and I agree with what he's saying, because Rebel is an action movie, but it's also a family drama, and it's also an international intrigue sort of movie. And occasionally, and not in the way you think, but in a way that I will struggle to describe, it's a musical. There are a few moments where a character will break out into song, but it's not like, you know, like, well, bop, 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 bop. No, it just like kind of happens naturally, so much so that you don't even realize you're in a musical number until halfway through it. Hyper stylized, super sharp, absolutely percussive from beginning to end. It is the best movie I saw at the film festival. And it is one where, like, when I emerged from the theater, the entire crowd was shook. Just like, like I was going to see a movie after this, and instead I went home because I didn't know how to process it. Um, there are a lot of reasons why I think a distributor might be hesitant to pick it up. Especially in a world where we no longer care about context, and it's just, oh, your mouth made the shape of this thought so it's got you know it's so stupid i actually don't think this is as rough as a paranoid producer would think but i think just a little bit of context really makes it work but especially after batgirl got shelved wrongfully i would hate to see this which is the best work i've seen from these guys which includes bad boys for life which kind of kicked ass i would love to see Rebel get a release, and I, I would just love to watch it again. Uh, like, jaw on the floor. Incredible performances, and, and, and like, regularly surprising and regularly shocking without feeling manipulative. Every few minutes, something would happen, and it might not be the most, like, explosive surprise or bombastic surprise, but it was always something that i go, oh, I did not expect this to go there, and now I have to really think about how I feel uh, in regards to the allegiances to characters or how this is developing. But at no point, to, even though it's a very 
propulsive and percussive narrative, and there are shocking plot moments that are like boom, bombastic. I, I it's it's extremely human and extremely real, and I I just I I want more people to see it so that I'm not just sitting here raving about it like a madman for no reason. Two left, and we're gonna do them quick because my throat hurts. Uh, sick was the next one. Uh, Sick is a fascinating movie because it is a slasher set in COVID times. I don't want to spoil too much, but essentially it's just two young women uh, go to a vacation house for a weekend and a killer shows up. What I loved about this movie is that it's not just a stalk and slash movie. Anytime our slasher villain attacks somebody, it's a fight. And this is directed by John Hyams, who did some of the latter-day Universal Soldier sequels, which, if you've seen them, the ones with Scott Adkins, you know, motherfucker knows how to shoot a fight. And that is the case here. And, you know, so often it's just, oh, we understand that the slasher is overpowering, so they get to stabbing, a titty falls out, and that's the end of that. These are, like, knockdown, drag-out, throw-down fights that happen in a... And, in real life, I would like to imagine that's how it would, I mean, not would like to imagine, but I would assume that's how it goes down. That that there is some defense going on as opposed to just like, ah, oh, don't hurt me, killer. So that happens. Thematically, the motivation of our murderer is something pretty interesting. And even though the movie overall feels a little thin, the way that the reveals in this are handled. I'll put it this way. A lot of films, not a lot, but there are a few films that we go, wow, you couldn't make that nowadays. This is the only film I can think of that's the opposite, where I'm thinking, you couldn't have made this a year ago without it getting demonetized on YouTube. I think that's all I'm going to say. But it's rather interesting, but it's very, very good, very funny, and just well done. And this is another one. It's 83 minutes. So it's just like a mean-spirited, gnarly little slasher that rocks. Oh, my throat hurts. But it's fine, because we're up to the last movie. Thanks for listening to me rant and rave for 80 minutes. You could have watched a couple of these movies in the time that I was going through this. But the last movie I saw, another one that I almost didn't see. Not because I didn't want to. It was on my schedule from day one. But I was so tired. And so fucking sick of watching movies by the end of the festival that I almost stayed home, and I did not, and I am extremely glad for this fact. Lynch slash Oz. This is from Alexander O. Philippi, Philippe, Philippe. He did that documentary that I always get the numbers wrong on about the shower scene from, uh, let's see, 7852, about the shower scene from uh, Psycho. He also did The People vs. George Lucas, another very thoughtful documentary. Um, he recently did that Leap of Faith, uh, William Friedkin on The Exorcist, which is wild because looking at my, uh, my letterbox, I've seen it, but I don't remember it at all. But so it goes. But Lynch Oz is a, is a series of six video essays with uh, the the words of these essays were written by a various group of talking heads. We don't see the talking heads. And then the visuals to each essay are uh, assembled by Philippe himself. And it's all about the connection between David Lynch and the Wizard of Oz. David Lynch, we know quite famously, 
does not like to discuss the meanings behind his movies, leaves it up to you. Love that. Love that for him. Love that for us. But you watch something like Wild at Heart, which is very heavily influenced by The Wizard of Oz, and you start to see connections in his other movies as to some ideas to The Wizard of Oz. And so this is just six different groups of people. It's, um, you know, let me list them off because it's going to blow your mind. So film critic Amy Nicholson, documentarian Rodney Asher, like Room 237, John Waters, don't need to give him an intro, Karen Kusama, one of the best filmmakers working today, uh, David Lowry, I could say the same for him, as well as the previously mentioned Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, each with a different reason why they think David Lynch was influenced and how he was influenced by The Wizard of Oz. It's a film lover's dream. It's footage from Oz layered against footage from David Lynch's entire career, interview footage with him, and it's like a hypnotic good time. It's very thoughtful. It actually reminds me of Room 237 a lot, where it doesn't necessarily aim for any conclusions. It's more about these great film minds pontificating on another great film mind and how he was influenced by perhaps the most influential movie ever made. Um, coming out of this movie, I was... I'm thinking that 2023 might be a heavy lynch year for I Like to Movie Movie. We'll talk about it. But uh, I hope that... Uh, the, I, I'm positive this will be available for streaming soon. Uh, the guy who introduced it, Michael Lerman, artistic director of uh, uh, Philadelphia Film Society, said that they programmed this as a late-night end-of-fest feature because it's sort of like a lullaby. And I can't think of a better way to put it. It is a film lover's dream. It is a David Lynch lover's dream. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, you want a documentary with conclusions, except when you don't. And here, you don't want the conclusions, because conclusions are antithetical to what David Lynch puts forth. If I may overstep my bounds as an interpreter, interpreter of his work, I would say that he almost wants you to just sit with his work, and see what it means to you. What I can draw from it is more important to me than what he could ever explain about it. And frankly, I don't want him to explain it. His work is only cryptic in a plot sense. But in the way that it makes you feel, in the way that it makes you experience what is happening on screen, there's nothing like it. And that is not subjective. That is completely existential, which is the realm that he operates in. And putting that against Wizard of Oz, both as an artistic creation of its, you know, in a vacuum, as well as a cultural phenomenon, is something that that you could probably talk about for hours. And this film talks about it for about two. And that was everything I saw at the Philadelphia Film Festival. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to, to me rant and rave. Thank you for, again, putting up with another gap in programming while I dealt with this. And a big cheers to everybody out there. Sober October is over, so I'm really going to enjoy this sip of a stout that I'm drinking right now. Plenty of cool stuff coming up in the near future. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to adhere to a bi-weekly format but I do have a brand new computer, which is going to make that easier. So please stay tuned to all of the social medias 
at Movie Movie Cast on Twitter, on Instagram. You can check out my website at scullyvision.com where I will corral everything that I do. And so stick around, stay tight, shoot me an email, moviemoviecast at gmail.com um, so we can talk about the movies that you want to talk about. And insofar as, hey, if you want to be on the show and chat with me, let's do it. I want to meet you. I want to do it. Um, in 2023, I am going to be doing a little bit more Lynch stuff because I have a backlog of Lynch material that I want to get through, and I only can I only can expect to understand it through the filter of discussing it out loud and discussing it with everybody here. So we're going to go through that. Got some cool guests coming up, so stay tuned for that as well. But um, otherwise, guys, happy post-Halloween. Don't let Thanksgiving pass you by. Eat some carbs. Eat some salt. Express your gratitude. Happy November. And I will see you in the next coming in the coming weeks. Uh, thank you again for everything. And again, shout out to the Philadelphia Film Society for uh, accepting Scully Vision as a press entity and for putting on a great festival this year. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. I love you.